Isaiah 64, starting in verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived. No eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you've hidden your face from us. And have given us over to our sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humble. Many of us broken in different ways. And we live in a time where it's easy to see the darkness. Even as Christmas music is coming through the walls. Even as Christmas, seriously, like, it's, it's dark underneath it all. Lord, we pray that you would pull back the veneer and we would sense your grief and your desire, your grief over sin and the brokenness that keeps us from you and your desire to run after us and bring us to you. We long for you. We long for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Four Sundays, time of waiting. This is why many churches all over the world dig deep into the Hebrew prophets. And the, the verse we just read is very classic to read at the beginning of Advent. The Hebrew prophets are important all year long, but especially during this time. They address the ancient people of God, but they also address <laughs> the core of our deepest longings, the longings you and I both know we have, directly to the sinfulness in our hearts that keeps us from going to God for the fulfillment of our longings. So we read from Isaiah. We're going to read from Jeremiah as well. And Isaiah and Jeremiah, they were prophetic voices during a time when Israel was about to be captured and dragged off into exile. It was a dark time for Israel. And they even prophesied during the time they were in exile. Very dark time. After God's people were defeated and then humiliated by Babylon, they had plenty of time for introspection and just reflection on their status. They had been torn from their home, and for all intents and purposes, God was dead total darkness all around them. And so the words of the prophets are ringing in their ears, like, Lord, would you come? Would you rend the heavens? But they looked around and they saw that the punishment they experienced was the consequence of their own unfaithfulness. The brokenness of this world, the darkness of this age, they were lost in a web of sin and corruption where no one was innocent. So you get this sense at this time of year. 
there's this unfulfilled longing in our hearts, just like there was for them. They long for God's loving presence. They long for everything to be right. As C.S. Lewis says, for all the sad things to come untrue, they long for that. But because of sin, all they saw was violence and darkness all around them and grief and loss. And the only appropriate response was these deep songs of lament and repentance. And so as we enter the season of Advent, this is also our condition. It doesn't take more than five minutes of daylight to realize sin and death are hell-bent on messing things up for us everywhere we look, even in our own hearts. I mean, here's Isaiah's last words, again, that we just read. All of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. That's how we step into Advent, with this heightened awareness of our collective inability to lift ourselves out of the fog. This darkness, okay? This darkness is a metaphor for the closed bubble system of the world as we know it. God originally created this world and called it good. Did you know this? God originally created this world and said, this is good. Every day, step back, this is good, 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 good. And at the end, very, there's tov, tov. There's very good. Tov is good. And he says it double. This is, God had every intention for us that was good and embedded it in the fabric of the universe. And I want you to know that that fundamental goodness is still present. We can't lose sight of that. That fundamental goodness is still there. God's good intentions behind the universe are undeniable. Like the beauty of a creative person. Okay, like I, I love when I just get to sit and watch someone create a painting or a sculpture. There's something so worshipful that happens in that exchange. The beauty of creativity, the kindness of a neighbor, the taste of wine and intimacy with dear friends around a table, friends and family, these are deeply good things that reflect the creator's heart, his original intention, and they're still here. The world is still latent with all that goodness, but God's good world is cloaked in darkness. Because of demonic evil and human sin, these, these cracks of death run through every square inch of God's good world. And even though our human hearts, uh, even though our human hearts desire good, we always find false motives mixed in. We always do, and we, li- and we like to find them in others too. And, and this is why Isaiah's words ring true. Let's hone in on that last line. All of us, all of us, have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All our righteous deeds are filthy rags, Isaiah says. And the idea there, in ancient Jewish culture, it's a polluted garment. I won't go too much deeper into it, but it's really, really gnarly for that culture. It's a ritually unclean piece of cloth. It's unholy, unfit for anything except to be burned up. So in the closed system of the world as we know it, in this bubble of darkness that we can't seem to crack out of like an eggshell from the inside, that's what our righteousness is like and worth. In ancient Jewish language, it's filthy rags, unfit garments we try to cover ourselves in. So, but what does that mean? Like, all our righteousness is as filthy rags? What does it actually mean for today? Um, Because we live in such an individualistic culture, uh, we tend to interpret this on a personal and individual level, like, 
oh, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. That means like all my righteous motives and good deeds and kind words are really evil and God sees them all as evil. No, I, don't, I actually don't think that's the right idea here. It's not like I did this really thoughtful thing for my wife, but before God it was condemned as filthy rags because he's so holy that he doesn't even look at my good deeds for my wife. No, it's not like this personal individual guilt trip thing. Uh, we get closer to the idea when we think about this on a global, systemic, communal level. Here's an example. Have you ever read the book, When Helping Hurts? Powerful book. It's changing the game on how pastors and Christians think about like short-term missions trips and how to actually alleviate global poverty. It was released nine years ago. And um, a big premise in this book was that there's a disconnect between how the Western world talks about poverty and how the majority world talks about poverty. So like the majority world, we tend to think of as poor, right? Uh, the majority poor world, they, they, they define poverty more in terms of lacking experiences and psychological experiences. Po- being poor to them is to lack relationship and experience, but the Western monetarily rich world views poverty more as lacking stuff, like ma- lacking material possessions. So there's like this disconnect, we don't even use the same definition. Uh, for the world poverty, so there's all kinds of confusions. And so like, what these authors realize in their research is that when rich Western North American churches start sending their money and high school evangelism students on short-term missions trips to majority world countries, it can be good, but this can also cause a harmful cycle where North American churches provide material resources in a way that reinforces a sense of inferiority and a lack of self-esteem among the target community, which then, of course, exacerbates and increases the cycle and the problem. Uh, so the authors give some really great input on how to rethink this, but just think of that problem. Think of the, <laughs> the different definitions of poverty, and you can't even begin to talk. And, and when you think of that confusion on a global level, we want to do righteous acts, we want to help, but it ends up hurting. And then you start to see the darkness, Right? All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. This system is broken. Another example, back in 2010, I don't know if you heard, have you heard the term virtue signaling? It's a, like a, you know, it's a term used online when you want to tell someone off or whatever. It's a pejorative on, on social media, virtue signaling. Basically, it's like this. If you're seen online publicly supporting a good cause, maybe by changing your Facebook profile picture to support a cause... Remember that old ice bucket challenge, you know, like you just, if you're, if you're that guy or that girl and you do the ice bucket challenge, or maybe you hashtag Black Lives Matter or, or even offering thoughts and prayers after a tragedy or whatever you do, uh, watch out, you might be accused of virtue signaling because it's like, sorry, it's like someone sees you do that online and they immediately speak out against you saying, sorry, buddy, your good intentions aren't really good. They're just signals you're sending out into the world so that you will be seen as good, and I declare you shameful for that. You're just virtue signaling. Click unfriend, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the system that's broken right now, which then has given rise to this thing called prayer shaming. Have you ever heard of that? Like, it's like, we're facing a civil rights crisis, and you tweet thoughts and prayers? Don't tweet thoughts and prayers. Tweet your congressman or whatever. And, and so there's this, there's this fight happening in the system and shaming and judging. And it's, this, it's an assumption we all make. This is our world. 
No one is righteous. No, not one. No one is righteous. No, not one. You start to see a global meaning behind these words. In the words of Ed Stetzer this week, he said, I'm constantly, consistently reminded that we live in a broken world and nobody gets through a broken world without being broken. So the ancient prophet Isaiah is spot on today in 21st century America. In this darkness, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. At Advent, this is a time for stepping back and acknowledging this dark reality. You guys, there's this growing sense. This is Advent. This growing sense that the world is swirling in a sea of moral chaos. And often even the church struggles to know which way's up. We're swirling too. I don't know how many of you saw this in the news last month. 26-year-old missionary John Allen Chow was killed a few weeks ago while trying to evangelize the isolated inhabitants of a remote Indian island. He sneaked onto the island illegally and was killed by multiple bows and arrows from this extremely remote people group. And it's an incredibly sad story, but what makes it sadder is the way countless people all, all over the world, believers and unbelievers alike, instantly jumped on this poor guy. He's dead already, but they jump on this story with their opinions and condemnations and critiques and blogs and tweets and news articles all over the world, accusing him of being reckless and presumptuous and culturally insensitive. And the worst part is, this is the chaos. It's impossible to know whose hot take is the most noble. It's almost like who can publish the most blogs the quickest and have their voice the loudest. In this darkness, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. So let's bring it closer to home. It's interesting, I think, the way American churches tend to sort of like brag on their websites or whatever. Like I, we do it too, like so many churches do it, we don't even realize it. Park Hill's no exception. We hardly notice it. It's like a website or a sign out front, something like, we are a friendly, welcoming, warm, inclusive, embracing, Bible-based, spirit-filled, gospel-centered community doing amazing things for the good of the city or whatever. And, and I realize churches have to like market themselves in a consumeristic culture. It's, the, it's like fish in water. We in consumerism, right? Uh, but honestly, I think people see th through that facade. I can tell you, because I can tell you story after story of hurting people who are seeking friendship and community from welcoming and embracing churches, only to be dis disappointed and rejected. I mean, I read recently that some insurance companies won't even insure churches anymore because of all the sexual and authority abuse that's going on. Some, some insurance companies, definitely not all. I wonder what would happen <laughs> if a church, this would be fun to see, if a church put a different description on their website, like on their sign, our community is a bunch of sinners and hypocrites, misfits, gossips, Pharisees, tax collectors, and all our righteous deeds are filthy rags, or whatever, like on the... <laughs> to step into Advent is to step back and see it this way. Yeah. To step into Advent is to see the darkness of our world for what it is. And to name it, to name it, and to feel our longing to be saved from it. That's it. Not just to name it so that you can have the finger pointing the other way, but to name it as the air we all breathe and the system we're all uh, in, and, and then feel together the longing to be saved from it. That's Advent. We've been conditioned to like rush towards Christmas as we're praying 
for this gathering, like we're hearing reindeer songs during the prayer from the ice rink next door. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, but we're conditioned to rush towards Christmas at this time of year, uh, but Advent won't let us do that, okay? Advent doesn't let us do that. Before we see the light of Jesus, we have to know the darkness of sin and death for what it is. Let's bring this even closer to home. Questions? Just reflection right now, family time, right? Have you ever done something you meant to be kind, but it ended up blowing up in your face? Have you ever had someone turn on you when you were only trying to help? Have you ever had your joy undermined by someone else's jealousy? A project or creative work, but then you show it. It's undermined by someone's jealousy. Have you poured yourself into a relationship only to be rejected? If you can answer yes to any of those questions, you know what it feels like to do your absolute best only to end in failure. In this darkness, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. This is the darkness where Advent begins. Just like ancient Israel thousands of years ago in Babylonian exile. Today we find ourselves immersed in a world deeply broken by sin and death and broken promises and racism, bigotry, deceit, sexism, you name it. In the closed system of the world, in our bubble, our eggshell from the inside, no one's righteousness can save. It is a closed system. It's from this place of awareness that we cry out with Isaiah. At the end of the chapter we read, verse 12, he says this, After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? You can feel the ache. Thousands of years ago, it's, it's so familiar. If you're paying any attention to the world, this is so familiar. This is our cry. And you guys, the hope of Advent is that the God of heaven answers that cry. He has answered and he will answer again with the resounding no, I will not hold myself back. I will not keep silent. I will not punish beyond measure. So now we get to turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. And I wanna give you a heads up on this chapter. He uses a powerful image of a branch, a root, a sprout. And that, that branch is Jesus, the righteous branch. And it refers to the fresh, green hope that shoots up from the dead stump of the destroyed royal house of David. Because when they're in exile, that tree is cut. The tree that fed them life, the tree that was David, the strong tree that gave their whole nation a reason to live, it was cut. They're in exile. They're someone else's property now. Israel is gone, and as far as they know, Yahweh is dead. But Jeremiah says, I will raise up a sprout. If you cut down a tree to the stump, there is no growth anymore. You're joking with us, God. There's no way. But God says, I will raise up for you a sprout. Here it is. You ready? This is amazing. The days are coming declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. It was cut. That line was cut. 
completely. And God's working a miracle. He will do that sprout, that branch, that Jesus. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There it is. The Lord is our righteousness, you guys. That's the name of our house now. David's house is cut. Jesus is sprouting up and it has a name. Where our righteousness was filthy and where our closed system was a foggy, dark eggshell from the inside out that none of us could escape from and all of us were privy to, God says, I'm putting you in a new house entirely. Humanity's collective sense of righteousness right now, our collective sense of righteousness is so confused and so distorted by our sinful nature that we can't, we can't make things right to, to save our lives. Um, on our own, we humans can't even agree. We can't even agree on the righteous words to use on the internet. We can't even agree on who to, how to vote or tweet or which cause is the noble one to put your hand up for on the internet, like to put your profile pic. No, they, oh, they stood up for that cause. They must, they must be that and all the judgment attached. We all do. There's no righteous. We can't even tell anymore. In our closed system, it's nothing but chaos. But at the, the heart of the gospel is that apart from the loving intervention of God, we'd be lost in this closed system with our own ideas of righteousness, which have no saving power. But at the heart of the good news is that we're not saved. We can't save ourselves. It's so good. That's such good news. We don't have to strive for the noblest cause in order to be the saved people. The Lord himself is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. God has done and will do what we could never champion ourselves. So centuries later, the Apostle Paul picks up on this. He picks up where Jeremiah leaves off. And Paul says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. I'll take me some divine wisdom, please. Yes, I need it. I need it. I feel stupid sometimes figuring out which cause is righteous and which one should I champion and how loud should I be and where should I put it online or whatever. I need God's wisdom. Well, guess what? Jesus himself has become God's wisdom for you. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The hope of Advent is that God has broken into the darkness of this closed world system and his light shines. His light shines now. Advent is expectation and hope in God's saving presence in the here and now. Like right now we have a hope and a settledness. In Paul's language, Jesus Christ just to summarize that verse we just read, he has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. This is good news. So for those of us, I don't know about you, I don't, I, I don't know where you're from or what your story is or what you bring into this room. You are welcome here. For those of us who pledge our allegiance to Jesus as Lord of the world, if you believe Jesus died for sin, resurrected after being buried, and then ascended after being seen and witnessed to by hundreds, 
and now rules and reigns over all the governments. There is no empire or government, not the government of the USA, not the empire of wherever you name it. Those are not the lasting governments that have final authority over our lives. Jesus Christ is the Lord. And as soon as you pledge your allegiance to Jesus as the emperor, as the president, as the governor of your life, then you now live in Jesus' household and the name of his household, the banner over his mantle, the mantelpiece in Jesus' household says, the Lord is our righteousness. He champions our causes. Jesus redeems our broken lives, and then he gives us his spirit so that we can now live out his righteousness as his family in the world. There we go. There we go. Did you hear that? That is how we now live out in the world, from his name, doing his righteousness, now we can truly do righteous deeds in Jesus' name and take up just causes in Jesus' name and stand up for the racially oppressed, sacrificially love the marginalized, the people, that, oh, the people that go unloved way too much. We can run to them and bring them in. There's no one that doesn't meet that criteria, deserving of our love. And we bring them in sacrificially. We do this not to establish our own name as righteous, just, cause-holding people. We do this because these good deeds are signs that God isn't silent in the world. We do good deeds not to promote our own righteousness, but to actually tell the world, like, there is a God who's not distant. There's a God who's come to us. He desires to shout his love over all of us. This is a sign that God reigns your righteousness in the world, your, your just causes you take up in Jesus' name, those are signs that God is actually the reigning king in the here and now, even in the midst of racism and fear and sickness and poverty and hatred. So what would it look like for Park Hill Church to live this out? Paul hits this in his letter to the Thessalonians. Listen to Paul's words here. Listen to this. Let, let Paul pray over Park Hill Church right now. He says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what's lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. It's amazing. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And see that last sentence. That is our Advent posture, okay? Not only did Jesus come the first Christmas, but Jesus is coming again. This is our fuel, okay? This is our fuel to live out his hope and to now live out his righteousness, don't get me wrong, we now do good deeds out of Jesus' name as members of his household because he's paved the way. It's not to earn God's favor. It's not to earn the favor of people around us. It's not so that we have a good reputation at school or online or in the work sphere or whatever. It's because God has done it already. And now we live out of his nature, showing the world that God is not silent. God is not distant. And we do it because God in Christ is coming again. Like both of these realities... Jesus has come, and Jesus is coming. Both of those realities fuel our worship and our love for one another now. This is why we join Park Hill Communities, because Jesus has come, and Jesus is coming. 
This is why we gather on Sunday and lift the wine and break the bread because Jesus said, the next time I do this will be when I come. This is the, fuel, this is the, whole, this is the whole thing, the whole fuel behind the entire engine of the church. Jesus has come and Jesus is coming. I don't know how often we think in terms of Jesus physically could return today. I think there's been a lot of theological pendulum swinging in the last decade. And I think it's good. It's caused a lot of Christians to kind of deconstruct some things that shouldn't have been there in order to reconstruct things that should. And to dig deeper into the ancient tradition of Jesus rooted in the scriptures and to actually get, get to the heart of what the church has always been about. I think it's been really great. But I think some, in my generation for sure, I speak for myself now, there's been a slight pendulum swing away from this idea that Jesus Christ, the physical Jewish Jesus Christ, could come back at four o'clock today. Like he can return physically to set up shop forever and to dish out whatever judgment he wants to. And I pledge allegiance to him I can't wait for that moment. Like living in light of that moment. I think in my life, I've seen a pendulum swing away from that urgency and I feel called back. And as a church, Park Hill, we are called to lean into urgency around Jesus' return to earth to set up his heavenly camp, whatever that looks like. There's so many positions on that. Whatever that will entail in the timeline of events or whatever. The imminent return of Christ fuels our worship and our love. Can I ask you, does that fuel your, your energy? Does the physical, imminent, any moment return of Christ fuel your energy, your emotional energy, your physical, spiritual, everything you do? Both of these realities fuel our worship. He's come, paid the price for us through his life, and he's coming again. God has come to us in Jesus. He's coming again. So powerful. So to wrap up, here's what it looks like uh, for us, Park Hill Church, to live righteously and blameless and holy, loving people well in light of his coming. That's Advent. In, in light of this longing. Very practically. Very practically, okay? Advent has three layers. We're going to come to the table on this. It's going to be great. Advent has three layers. God's ancient people waited. For Christ's first coming, we are ultimately waiting for Christ's second coming. And here's that third layer. This is the icing for the in-between. Today, we wait for the Spirit to come in the present moment, always. Waiting, 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 three layers of it. So right here in the here and now, we begin by waiting. I, I, don't, I, know, I know I said it'd be practical. I think this is extremely practical to be a people who know how to wait to be people who know how to be a people who know how to delay gratification. Advent is for waiting. As we tell the story of redemption through the Christian calendar, we begin not with doing but with waiting, waiting for God to act. So I don't know if you knew there was a Christian calendar. It begins with Advent, and after Advent, it, it, it turns to Christmas. There's actually on the calendar there's 12 days of Christmas, like just like the song with a pear tree. And it starts on Christmas Day and it goes all the way to January 5th. And January 6th, which happens to be a Sunday in 2019, it's Epiphany, 
when Jesus comes to the Gentiles, the wise men seek him. And all through Epiphany, there's like this gratitude for the gospel having moved from Israel to every nation. And then you step into what is commonly known as Lent, which you don't have to be all weirdly religious about. You just say, God, what do you want to remove? And and what spiritual practices do you want to add? And for 40 weekdays, it ends up being more than 40 calendar days, we lead all the way through Lent and end up at Good Friday, where it's one of the darkest days of the year. And we align ourselves with the sufferings of Christ, and we thank him for going before us into that suffering. And then in three calendar days, we get to celebrate the breaking of Lent and the party with Jesus' new creation moment coming in through resurrection. It's like the calendar shift. So the Christian calendar, it rotates on two poles, like the earth, north and south, Advent and Easter. And there's a bunch of weeks of Easter, actually all the way up to Pentecost Sunday, where we thank him for the Spirit. And after Pentecost Sunday, we're set free into what's called ordinary time. On the calendar, it's actually called ordinary time. I like to also call it kingdom time. Where the mundane acts of changing your baby's diaper and taking out your trash and reading your Bible and asking the Holy Spirit to come and talking to your mom on the phone, all those mundane acts become kingdom time. And we gather on Sunday all year long, all the way back up to Advent again. I love it so much. I mean, what, what better discipleship path is there than to sit, than to say, Jesus, I have my iCal on my iPad, but that's just for like not being late to stuff. You're so the Lord of my life that you actually change the way I tell time. So at Park Hill, we have a a loose, not crazy, but respectful grip on that rhythm. And that's why we're here at Advent. I think it's it's a profound return for us because waiting is essential. Many of us are children of a high-speed, instantaneous age, and we're not very good at waiting. Because waiting feels too much like doing nothing. Uh, And our culture takes pride in producing and being busy, so waiting isn't really our thing. Uh, But waiting is essential because it's in the waiting that our soul grows quiet and contemplative and cultivates an awareness for discerning what God is doing when he is acting. If you're someone who waits on the Lord, you're someone who knows what God's movement looks, sounds, feels, tastes like, and you dive in when you see it. It's, it's the life of a contemplative. It's what it is. And God's always acting in the world because God loves the world. So on this first Sunday of Advent, I'm here to tell you right now, as you're seated here, God is about to act. God's about to act in your life. In fact, he is acting in your life and in your world. If we're gonna be a church that moves in step with the actions of God, then we have to be willing to sit and be quiet in the presence of God. So before we can become a people that take up just causes in Jesus' name, we must first become a people who wait in Jesus' presence and sit at his feet. Otherwise, we'll just be people who don't just act. We'll be people who react. Reactionary people just recycle anger and waste time on social media and keep the world an angry place. Jesus was not that kind of person. Jesus was a contemplative activist. Jesus was a contemplative activist, but he was never reactive. 
Jesus waited on the Father and then responded by doing what he saw the Father do and saying everything the Father said. And so here's the challenge. And it's in the form of this book that was released 80 years ago. It's amazing, okay? It's called Letters by a Modern Mystic by Frank Laubach. He was a man deeply in love with Jesus. He founded a literacy organization that hundreds of thousands of Americans 80 years ago were trained to read because of this man's ministry. Um, So he was deeply in love with Jesus, and on January 26, 1930, he wrote this in the letter. We used to sing a song in the church in Benton, which I liked, he says, but which I never really practiced until now. It runs moment by moment, I'm kept in his love. Moment by moment, I have life from above. Looking to Jesus till glory doth shine. Moment by moment, O Lord, I am thine. And he goes on, he's like, it's exactly that moment by moment. Every waking moment, surrender, responsiveness, obedience, sensitiveness, pliability, lost in his love, that I now have the mind bent to explore with all my might. It means two burning passions. First, to be like Jesus. Second, to respond to God as a violin responds to the bow of the master. I love that image. Have you seen a violinist and just the stroke of the bow? This guy, I, this guy, Frank, he's like, I just want to respond to God like I'm being bowed by a master violinist, and I'm just sitting there, and I sing. That's a contemplative. That's someone who waits. So as we step into this first week of Advent, let's choose to be awaiting people moment by moment because the Lord himself is our righteousness. We're in a new home. He's a God who acts. He's our righteousness and he acts righteously. And so when we wait for him, we see him acting, we respond like a singing gut string on a violin. And then we respond and moment by moment we acknowledge God's presence And you guys, there are reminders of God's presence everywhere this month. Literally, you see lights on trees and songs. Snoopy sings theology at this time of year. (laughs) There's reminders of God's presence everywhere. I mean, uh, let's let every Christmas light, like literally, this is not cheesy. This is deep. Let's, Let's let every Christmas light be a reminder to stop and step into harmony. Moment by moment, step into harmony with God. You're the God who's acting. How are you acting? And step into harmony with God. And then from that waiting out of the silence, let's be the community that righteously speaks and acts. You guys, we're stepping into 2019 with a ton to do, multiplying to two gatherings, encouraging all of us. I just heard, like Dan and Alexis told us, that there's, there's like 20 to 30, even maybe more percent of this church that's engaging a Park Hill community. Like, that's crazy. I think that's a lot. I think that's really great. But at the same time, I'm like, that's a lot of you who aren't. That's like two-thirds of the church. And when we're pitching community as the thing God is calling us to, that's two-thirds of this group on Sundays that has yet to fully embrace that living. We long for that for you guys. I believe God longs that intimate connectivity for all of us. So let's be a people who listens. Lord, how are you moving? You're moving us into community. Lord, how can I respond? I'm gonna take the lead. How are you moving? 
okay, you just want me to submit to a community and just be present and faithful and committed. And if I'm going to miss, I'm going to call ahead or whatever. Like, like how, how is God calling you to respond? So from waiting, be the kind of person who then acts after you've seen God respond. And so that's what we're going to do right now. God has spoken. I believe God speaks when people gather like this. I believe the whole two or more thing, uh, yeah, that's a passage about church discipline. I also think it's a passage just about the church. I think it's about when God sees his people gather, he sees that as a prime opportunity to begin doing stuff. I expect God to mess with us at these gatherings in beautiful ways. Can we stand together? Let's invite him to come. Let's be a people who wait. Just take a deep breath. Just breathe in and breathe out and acknowledge the presence of God. Acknowledge the presence of your brothers and sisters around you. You've come with family or friends. This is good. There are parts of the world that just radiate God's good intentions at creation, and the church is one of those parts. Right now, we see people being restored from brokenness, healed from physical illness. We see all of that in the church. We expect him to do this as we wait on him to act. Let's invite him to come. He loves being invited. He's everywhere, like Tanika said. He's everywhere, but he loves to be invited, to be welcomed. Lord, we want to be a people who wait, a people who don't rush to the presence, a people who don't rush to the lights and the consumerism, but a people who who wait in the capital P, presence of God, That's who you want to be, because we've seen you, we've tasted how good you are. If you're new to Jesus, if you have never pledged allegiance to Jesus as your Lord, let this be your moment. Let this be a time when you can say, okay, I haven't been oriented around him. If he's coming to break the dark eggshell of unrighteousness and filthiness everywhere, I want to be part of that project. I want to be part of what he's doing to make all things new. Well, good news. The gospel is just that. It's good news. He invites you. He invites you to his table as one of his sons and daughters. Come in faith. If you would want to make a decision to follow Jesus, then during this first song, just stand up here, literally, and wait. And people will come to pray for you. People will come to bring you to Jesus in prayer.